the rationale or the reasoning or the context for this talk is out of my own life, as is all of my lessons come out of my own life. So um, you might have been able, you might have also experienced these challenges um, where you uh, have chemistry with somebody, you fall in love, or you get along well enough that you'd want to see them again, and then again and again and again, and soon enough you're seeing them on a regular basis, and um, you're doing couple things, and then that turns into one year, two year, three year thing. And, and it wasn't really even a conscious decision for many guys, as it wasn't for, for me to get into a relationship. You're just having fun, casually dating, um, and then next thing you know, you, you like certain girls in particular, or guys, if you're a girl, and you start to home in on one or two individuals. And um, if you're a mature, or if you're like a cool adult in the modern world, you never really have that talk of like, are we girlfriend, boyfriend now? Um, that's often the, the weaker party begging for reassurance at that point. So you're, you're, probably in, you're probably the dominant one, like, hey, no problem, yeah, let's just hang out. But then inexorably, even if you don't put a label on it, you are in fact in a relationship. And um, then you have a honeymoon period, that's gonna be six months or uh, a year, and then you start having difficulties. And once, the, uh, a common time when that happens is you move in together, or, or you get married, that's a big thing, or any kind of like big, monumental, unconscious, um, or a decision that tells your unconscious that this is a commitment thing, that will start to trigger the, the neuroses that we all have. And I'm gonna be getting into that. But one of the things that it creates is, uh, here's a typical fight that would happen right after the honeymoon stage wears off. Um, she, she gets mad about something that's very trivial. Like you have no idea why she's mad about this little, little thing. And you're just like dismissive of it. Like, what's the big deal? Let's just forget it. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, okay. And you're even willing to concede the point. Okay, fine, you're right, because you just don't feel like arguing. But then that makes her even more mad. She's like, why doesn't he respect me? And from the woman's perspective, often what she's thinking is, why is he so stubborn? Why is he so selfish? Why is he so self-centered? And it could be something as simple as the fact that you want to take the trash out at 6 p.m. versus 6 a.m. when she wants you to get it, yeah, something like that, right? And you're like, what's the big deal? Okay, fine. But often what will happen is you just get really, have these huge fights over the dumbest things. And you're, at the, after the fight, you wonder, uh, you, you, for men, you forget what the whole fight was about, actually. You're just it, fleeing from the situation, right? And then actually one of you will often just literally flee the room or the house or something. Just like, I'm going for a walk and slam the door and you're out. And uh, the other one's just like, oh, no. And it all started because... You know, she wanted to wash the dishes in a certain way or something like that. And it really has, obviously, as you could probably tell if you think about it rationally, have nothing to do with the actual argument. But that's a sign that you're out of the honeymoon stage. When these little things become huge things, and actually David Data talks about this, like those in The Way of Superior Man, a great book, that these little fights are never really about the trivial issue. It's that, and he, he said it's a masculine-feminine issue, but that's a it's a gross oversimplification. Um, it's much deeper. And once you understand how deep it is, you can actually get um, control over it and grow out of it, grow from it, actually makes you more mature. So um, that's something that I didn't discover until relatively recently in my life. I'm turning 41 next month. And um, on my second marriage, hopefully the last one. And uh, I've made all of these mistakes uh, for decades, obviously since, I guess, my first relationship when I was 17, uh, over and over and over. And I kept thinking, okay, the problem is I just need to find the right person. The problem is the person. 
And the, the problem partly is the person, but mostly it's you because you selected that, those persons over and over and over. Um, so a piece of advice my friend Mark Manson likes to give is, if you have a lot of relationship problems, the one common strand between all your relationship problems is you. So you're probably the problem. So you gotta turn that, uh, that navel gazing onto yourself, well, the gazing onto your navel, and um, figure it out. So if you've ever been in a situation where you've been getting chemistry with people that you later on down the road experience a lot of drama with or arguments with or a, a different kind of drama where it's just a passive aggressive drama and people just fall away and then one of them steps out and the other one just like, how could you do this to me? And didn't see it coming. And that's another way of creating drama, just avoidant drama. If, and all of the people that you know, all the, the potential partners that you know wouldn't have, you probably wouldn't have had this drama with, that you think you wouldn't have had it, just didn't turn you on, you just weren't interested in them. Like David's like, hey, what, what about that girl? And you're like, nah, I'm really more into this type of girl. Or you wanna, you know, so if that's the case, if you keep going for the strange, if you're the girl going for the bad boy, or you're the boy going for the wild girl, or you want a sexy hot girl that you can show off to your buddies, then you're seriously in trouble. Okay, and this is part of, if you did any PUA stuff. <laughs> so PUA, in fact, this is a nice uh, bracketed segment here for, for the ex-PUAs or PUAs who, who are, or PUA stands for pickup artist. And the guys who are in the pickup artist world don't go into the pickup artist world to get um, the girl in, like in Singapore we call it the heartland. I suppose you could say the girl next door, right? The, the nice girl who's like, out of, in the entire class of 30 kids, she's like right average, good, like looking and, and all this. No, they're always paying the thousands of dollars to learn how to get the hot girl in the club or something like that. Right. Those guys all need like serious help. They're all suffering severely from psychological disorders. Not, <laughs> I wouldn't say disorders, but definitely neuroses as we all did. And any relationship those guys get into is doomed to fail. And sometimes I see, these, I see these guys get married, and I'm like, this is awesome. And then I meet up with them for coffee or beer, and I hear the same shit over and over. And sometimes it's two or three or four years into that marriage, they're confessing to me that they're having a hard time um, staying loyal, or um, they want to get back in the field, or I meet them, and then the first thing we do is we go off to, or they try to get me to go to like a go-go or or uh, a soapy or a strip club or something like that. So I'm thinking, dude, you're fucked because you're only three years in. You got to stay all the way through till you die. So clearly this is not good. So they're all suffering from this problem. You do not solve the problem by just getting another partner and embracing the, the drama. Um, and I'm wondering what's happening with the other side, with the, the woman in that case. Um, she's definitely uh, not going to be happy if this is the case. So often what happens is couples find um, that they can have a truce. If they, don't get, they either get divorced or they find significance in um, other things. Maybe their work, maybe in an affair, uh, maybe with their kids, but they need to find significance elsewhere and that's often what happens. And then they lead lives of quiet desperation. So if you don't want to get a divorce, if you don't want to keep breaking up over and over and over, if you don't want to be on your fifth marriage, as an old man, um, there is hope for you. Okay, so this is what this is all about. There's hope. Um, I figured it out. Uh, it was very difficult. I'm still getting practice and experience going deeper um, into the solution. Uh, I'm, I consider myself still relatively young, and uh, but you know I am for I'm ha like half. I'm past halfway point for the average lifespan. 
Um, so I, I guess I'm a little older, but um, it's taken me a long time. So for the guys who are in, in your 20s or for you guys in your early 30s, um, actually, you're like the same as me now. Wow. We've aged together. Um, there, there is hope for you. Uh, you have a great life ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, and there's a, what's the hope? It comes from the solution. So the rest of this talk is about the solution. Okay. Now, all of this is to prime you for the fact that we're going to be getting into some deep psychological concepts. If you're still looking for, uh, like, how do I meet women and all that, I've got other, a lot of other videos on that and other stuff on that. So go there. This is for mature people, and it's also for people who enjoy intellectual exploration and, more importantly, enjoy emotional exploration of, of learning about themselves. So that requires that you do have to pay attention. You do have to concentrate. If your mind wanders, it may not just be because you stayed up till 2 a.m. whoring it out. It could be because you're actually, your unconscious mind is actually running from the truths that you're hearing and protecting itself because that's a major um, finding in psychology. You might um, get sleepy or your mind might wander uh, or you might need to pee. These are all defensive mechanisms um, that your unconscious brain will will trigger, uh, will, will um, resources that it will call upon to rescue you from actually having to confront um, the actual, the, the reality. So keep that in mind. So before we dive into that, just keep that in mind. So the first slide is pretty heavy. Childhood wounds, baby. So, you know, one thing about childhood is when I was a kid, I mean, when I, when I, yeah, when I was a teenager, I was thinking like, you know, um, I, I, I watched Dr. Phil, I listened to Oprah, and it's, all, it's sort of like, okay, every, and, and then the uh, stereotypical um, kind of parody of a, of a shrink visit where you lie on a couch, like in Goodwill Hunting, those, those scenes were really funny at the beginning of the movie, and you sit, you lie there and you explore your childhood. So Brené Brown in her famous TED Talk started by saying she, she knew she had to go see a therapist, but when a therapist sees a therapist, it's always bad news. And so she walked in there and she's like, look, I just need help with a specific problem. I don't want to talk about my childhood and shit. <laughs> the therapist was like, okay, we got a work cut out for us. So I, I was the same way. I was like, anytime I was reading about childhood issues, I'm like, give me a break. This is, this is bullshit, airy-fairy Freudian, like everything's about dicks and stuff. So actually, um, when I, like I said, kept running into these issues, and then I started, lead, started leading clients uh, through, like sharing my own experiences and, and my friends, through what I'd gone through and then seeing them grow and finding great fulfillment. I forgot that part in the first slide. Um, that was confirmation that it was working. And then for over two years, um, almost three years, we've been testing it through online uh, courses and seeing how actually, actually, I could actually deliver um, some of that experience of transformation uh, emotionally and in terms of maturity psychologically through that course. I realized it's not just me, first of all, that there's childhood wounds, when you heal them, it heals your life and empowers you, but it's also everyone else. And then I really paid more attention to clinical psychology. So in fact, this goes deeper than anything I've done up to this point in my life. Um, and we're still starting with childhood wounds. I've experimented with lots of different ways. Like, let's start from where you're at now and work backwards to childhood wounds so that you're more receptive. But now I'm just gonna give it to you, boom, because I assume you're advanced enough to understand. Um, I don't have to warm it up too much. Childhood is where you got the problem. See, he's falling asleep already. You're already like, no, not my childhood. I don't want to talk about it. So we have uh, universal human needs. I've gone over this in many of my other courses. 
Um, the most basic needs are security. So uh, we have that just from the fact that we're homo sapiens. homo sapiens. Homo sapiens pop out their babies much quicker than any other mammal. And when you came out of the womb, you were completely defenseless. In fact, in many ways, you were blind, like you couldn't see very far. And um, you couldn't fend for yourself. So if you didn't have any other homo sapien adults around you, um, or yeah, any other adults, you would not have survived. So the first need that we feel at our core, like down our spine, is security. Um, Tony Robbins talks about it in terms of certainty. Um, so security. So you got to know that you're safe. You're going to keep living. You're going to have food and all this. And another great way to think about it that I think is more nuanced than the Robbins needs analysis is safety. So in clinical psychology, safety becomes a great, like I see that a, a lot more in terms of the primal need, safety. So one of the reasons why people have such dramatic fights is because they don't feel safe in those moments. And it's, it's really deep. If you could make the other person feel safe, then they can actually start to, um, start to soothe themselves back into a rational mindset, a rational frame of mind. Um, so safety. So first you have to have a sense of physical security. You're gonna, you have food and you have shelter and somebody who can go and find food and shelter for you. And then um, that gives you a sense of safety. Okay, beyond that, you need love because you could get security from a jail okay, where they don't love you, um, but they give you three squares a day and all that. Um, and you can have relative safety, I suppose the shower is dangerous, but you, know, you can have safety and security from somebody who doesn't love you. And you're, you're still going to be incredibly needy. And we all, as little babies, have the need for love. And of course, connection, they're, they're related. And the reason why we have all of these primal needs of security, safety, love, and connection is because they're actually based on an even deeper need, the need to not feel the primal fear. The fear that you have before you even come out of the womb, theoretic, theoretically, <laughs> we haven't been able to interview anybody in the womb yet, so it's hard to know, but the, the primal fear is the fear of death. All homo sapiens struggle to survive, to get air, to, to stay alive. Um, there's this M. Night Shyamalan movie about, like, I forget the name of it. It just came up, um, just thought of it now, but they have these, the, the vegetation fights back against human beings, and they, they send out this, they emit this thing where you smell it, and then you kill yourself. Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was weird. But it's M. Night Shyamalan, right? So it was like lots of eerie silence of like you look at trees swaying back and forth. But um, it was with uh, Mark Wahlberg. But actually, it was an interesting movie. It was, uh, but, so I, that was the first movie that caused me to think, huh, why don't I just jump off the cliff? Why don't, I guess there is. This, so there's this homo sapien need to pres uh, preserve yourself, self-preservation. And it's the other side of the fear of death. So uh, at the last mastermind in New York, I did a whole day um, discussion on the denial of death. And it was based on Ernest Becker's book, um, life-changing book. It is so deep. I read it uh, multiple times, and I'm still, every time I read it, picking up new things. So um, anyway, so at a very basic level, you can just understand it in terms of the primal fear, the fear of death. Okay. Then at... We develop these needs and these fears that these needs are trying to fight against. So in, order, so in other words, if you don't get security, you're going to die. That's scary. That's why we have the need for security. If you're not safe, you're going to die. That's why we have the need for safety. If you don't get love, you're not going to get security or safety, and you will die. 
Okay, and in fact, if you don't have connection and you're just a human being alone, stranded on an island, but let's say you also have like security and safety there, you're still gonna die prematurely uh, because homo sapiens have the need for social, as social beings, the need for connection. So all this is really grounded in the fear of death. We have seen these needs shape the human personality, we as in like researchers, um, from as young as six months old. We can't go any younger, we can't confirm it goes any younger because ethics boards won't allow us to test on any and babies less than six months. But on the six months old, like very um, standard tests uh, on the attachment styles have been done on six month olds. Um, and you see very clearly that there are already attachment styles that are quite distinct that form at six months. And as you go into a year and a half, around 18 months is a big turning point. Because uh, at that point, the child can talk, can walk, can fend for itself, more or less, and communicate. And we're seeing there that between six months and up to the two-year mark, um, you have this so-called stage for autonomy and independence. And then in the, in the uh, terrible twos period is where you see this fight for that, trying to struggle to understand what you as a homo sapien are relative to all the rest of the world, right? This is where you start to form all your fucked upness. Technical term. Okay, so your attachment issues emerge, your attachment styles of avoidant attachment or anxious attachment or anxious avoidant or secure will start to form um, partly out of, well, actually mostly out of the way your mother or your primary caregiver treats you. So ideally, the mother would say something like, uh, well, ideal parenting would give you a safe and secure base for you to go explore. So then little Johnny, at six months old or a year old, goes off and plays in the playroom. And then when he falls down or he suddenly realizes that he's way off in the corner, he looks for mommy, and mommy's there, and especially if he's very young, six months or something, he'll crawl back and mommy will say, oh, hey, welcome back, you know, or she'll you know, be very loving towards him. And then at any time when you want to play again, just go off and wander off and know that mommy is here for you anytime you look for me or need me. And then the little boy wanders off again and plays safe and secure in the belief that mommy's got his back and loves him and will always take care of him. And this, is, this needs to continue all the way through to like two years in. And at two years, this is where the little boy starts to realize that mommy's not his slave. Mommy's not just a big, powerful slave. She actually has a mind of her own. Sometimes she's pissed off when she comes home. Sometimes she doesn't want to play with Johnny. Sometimes Johnny does something really great, like he hid very well during hide and seek, and mommy just got so exasperated because she couldn't find him. And then finally, after a half hour, like, Johnny, just come out. Johnny comes out like, yay, I did so great in this thing. You couldn't find me. Mommy's like, all right, go to sleep. And then John, Johnny's like, wow, I got punished for doing such a great job of hide and seek. This is uh, cases I've actually witnessed with my own eyes. And uh, Johnny then starts throwing a fit, and everyone's like, what's his problem? Well, it's because um, he was, it's like a puppy, or brings back the, when, when played fetch, and then when he brought back the bone, you kicked him in the face. So this will create disorders. <laughs> well, at the very least, it will create a series of neuroses um, and uh, problems in your attachment styles. So the next slide I realize is gonna now introduce you to a series of concepts that are quite um, complex. But what I wanna point out before I leave this slide is all of the problems that you have in your relationships can be traced back by a whole legion of professionals who do this for a living. 
to your childhood. It may not be that they can discover it as early as two years old because you may not have your memories from those traumatic events then. Um, because once you have introduced trauma, it will start to block off memories from before that period. Um, but definitely in your formative years up until about 17, 18, and then if you have, um, you, obviously if you have more trauma after that, that will influence thing, how things go, like if you're raped or if you're, uh, PTSD or something like that. Um, but the further along in your life the trauma happens, the easier it is for you to grow out of it. The, the earlier it is, the more a part of your brain structure it's become. Okay, so that's why if you, the further back you can go, the better. So we have various cells. Now this is a very important concept. A lot of people around the world don't realize this. All psychologists think this. Only idiots don't believe this. Idiots like flat earthers. If you are a flat earther watching this, please do me a favor and do not enter any of my programs. But there are people who also, like along flat earth lines, believe that you are a unitary self and that is that you have a one-dimensional self. But in fact, all of psychology, since the beginning of the field of psychology, believed that and theorizes and posits and actually is based on the, the belief that um, we are a conglomeration of loosely held various selves. Um, Jung called them subpersonalities. And it's, so this is really deep. And in fact, uh, I have other courses that go deeper into subpersonalities. But um, for this course, just to understand relationships, you just need to see overall, broadly speaking, there are three categories of divided selves. All right, but let's first figure out what divided selves are. We all have parts of ourselves hidden from consciousness. And the, uh, these are natural abilities, thoughts, feelings that were removed from our conscious awareness. Um, so what happened is mommy or daddy didn't like what you were doing. And you weren't mature enough or maybe even intellectually developed enough to understand why mommy or daddy didn't like you doing that. And instead, you, because mommy and daddy are the most powerful uh, and they're the, they're the most powerful things you know, and they're the sources of your basic needs of security and safety. So if mommy and daddy don't actually love you, then that means you won't get safety and security, so that means you're gonna die. And nobody likes to deal with death. No children wanna like actually face death. That's too fearful, even adults don't do that, right? So instead what they do is they turn it on themselves. It's much easier to not blame mommy and daddy as a little six-month-old who actually does that. Instead, they'll blame themselves. I am bad, right? So mommy says, bad boy. You say, actually, according to this book I read and the theorists I've been following, uh, you are acting out your own issues, mom, and blah, blah, blah. No six-month-old does that. They don't psychoanalyze anything. They're just like, oh, powerful thing that is the source of my being doesn't like me. It must be because I am not likable, right? So this is what happens. So then they say, oh, I can't be that way then. So to be a good boy or a good girl, you have to psychologically cut off a part of yourself. And this happened over and over and over. And it was probably conditioned because you probably didn't just learn the lesson once and then stop doing it. You probably tried your hand at it for a few times and then your parents finally, then they, you know, they really ripped into you and then you're like, okay, really, I can't be that way. So, uh, and you might have been, you might have took, taken the rebellious route and said, fuck you, and became the bad boy. Um, that's a later, usually a later, but you see this happening in the, two, the terrible twos. Uh, kids are trying all these different coping strategies, and um, eventually to get along with mom and dad, or the primary caregivers, you probably fit the good boy um, that they, so that you could get the love and safety and security. 
And if you were in, let's say, foster homes um, that were not good, this is common, um, not to say all of them were bad, but um, it's common to be a, a, a child in foster homes um, that were uh, subject to abuse. Uh, you probably had to shift many, many times because the definition of good boy kept changing. And that's even obviously more confusing. So um, what happened was early on in your life, in order to adapt to mommy and daddy, you had to repress your true self. So a common example of this is in Singapore, a place I know quite well from working with clients there for over eight years, is that they couldn't be sexual, or they couldn't be, they couldn't do this as little kids. <laughs> or they couldn't be Elvis of Singapore. Is there an Elvis of Singapore? Is there, yeah, he's called gay, right? He's probably, you know, on YouTube, some Malay guy who's like, fuck it, everything, right? Um, so that's just the fucking truth. So, but like, you couldn't be that way, not for a nice, respectable family in Singapore. So he had to be what? He had to basically pretend like he didn't have a penis. The penis was just for excreting urine. And this is what I have to deal with now as a fucking coach. 25 years into this, realizing finally that it's okay to have sexual desires. Well, where, where did that come from? Well, a part of him actually had, like, was a normal boy. It was a male. But he had to pretend like he was a good boy, which was fake. He wasn't really a good boy, he was a naughty boy. You couldn't be naughty Johnny in Singapore, right? They put you in fucking jail in a straitjacket, and then you gotta seek asylum in Chicago. So, <laughs> that was an inside joke for all the Singaporeans. Um, anyway, so this repressed your true self. And what now I'm gonna use, so actually another term for that I'm gonna use instead is repressed your lost self. So when you repress your true self, it becomes your lost self, you've lost it. But it's still there in your unconscious. And it will become very, um, very important for figuring out relationships and, and why you struggle with happiness, in fact. Okay, so what happens is you suppress it. So John, Johnny finds out he can't be that way. So he has to suppress that part of him that he cannot be. And it might be powerful. You might, mom might not like the fact that you're powerful. That's for dudes. Or for women, it might, you're often, often being, in, especially in Asian or conservative places, having to suppress your sexuality but also your playfulness, sometimes your talkativeness. See that in Singapore? You can't talk, so sometimes, when, so often, as you guys know, when I ask for dialogue, I get this, the Singapore poker face, right? Just, because they, as a young child, were forced to suppress their talk. Don't talk, Johnny, be quiet, BJ, right? Put, little kids are supposed to stay quiet in the corner. They're not supposed to talk, they're not supposed to be rambunctious. No, it's, not in, it's not encouraged. In fact, then you go to school, and you get fucked over even more, right? You sit and you have all this energy, it's a little, a bundle of, of energy. Like, whoa, I wanna go play like a little dog, right? Running in the yard. Instead, you're fucking forced to sit there for six fucking hours to do math problems while the sun is shining. And then they release you when the sun starts to go down. How, how torturous is that, right? Okay, so that's what you all had to go, that's what we all had to go through. So what happens is over time, we suppress that part of ourselves, and then we get distracted. This is a really important thing, because you think suppression equals repression. It can if, if it's very traumatic suppression. Um, like, so, but what, often what happens, if you take wartime as a good example of this, but most of your lives were actually war. It's all relative what, what you went through. Um, so you had to suppress a part of yourself, and then you had to get on with life. So this is a very masculine way of dealing with life, right? I gotta get the shit done. I can't deal with feelings. Right, that's what dudes do, right? So they push the feelings aside, and this is really easy. When you suppress a part of yourself, you don't get to look, oh, look, I'm suppressing it. Look at that. Oh, there it goes. Oh, there's, and then you, because if you do that, you're actually not really suppressing it. You're just hiding it for a little while, because when mommy turns her back, you're going to be the naughty boy again, right? No, it's like you get suppressed, and then you got to do some homework. 
Okay, you got to suppress your urges and do multiplication tables. Or if in war, you, you can't cry because your buddy just got blown to bits on a landmine next to you. You're getting shot at. So now you got to get cover. You got to deal with your, the rest of your team. You have to hold flank or whatever it is, right? You got to move on. And that's when, that's when repression occurs. Because what happens is you suppress it and then you get distracted. And or what happens for children is they, they actually get into their coping strategies. So one way that one way you suppress and then the child, let's say, get, becomes a pleaser and tries to make mommy laugh. And mommy laughs and now that's great. And what's he forgotten? He forgot about the part of himself that he suppressed, that mommy didn't like too much, right? And then what happens over time? He forgot that he had that part, and now it's repressed. Repression is unconscious. Suppression happens consciously. And the, the breakage from the conscious process to the unconscious process is the coping strategy. And what will happen in relationships is when you start to get triggered at the moment, you think this is a commitment. This is where I'm actually going to get the love for the rest of my life. As soon as you think that, you start triggering those childhood wounds, and then the repressed part starts to push up against reality. And where do you go? You go to your coping strategy. So for you pleasers and achievers, what do you go? You, you go and please the girl. Right? You try, Can, okay, anything, just, I'll do anything. Just stop screaming at me or whatever it is. Right? And that pisses her off even more because she had her, you know, her, probably that's how she was dealt with when she was a child, and she just, that triggers her. You guys keep triggering each other. So um, this happens uh, from the very beginning of your life. No matter how well-intentioned our primary caretakers were, they traumatized us. Okay, so I put that out there because a lot of Singaporean boys, you know, I've, again, I've worked in the Singapore context for a while. They're so enmeshed with their mothers um, and their fathers uh, and their whole family unit that they cannot stand to even think in a critical way against their family. So I'm putting it out there. They loved you, man. It was great. It's not their fault. They still fucked you over. <laughs> All right, but you were fucked over out of that context, right? Because no, there's no perfect parent. They have their lives and, and so on. And even if, and I'll get to that. All the examples I'll, I'll use are actually mundane daily life examples. I'm not gonna be drawing from sexual abuse or, or more, any of the more extreme ones because oh, it's a lot easier to do it that way. Um, you see it a lot clearer, um, but I'm gonna try to make it come home to you. The fact that every single human being, if you're an adult, has to deal with this. And this is why I know for a fact that the vast majority of people who are actually married are not happy. They can't be unless they've gone through this therapeutic processes. Um, they're just putting up a front for their kids or, or whatever. In fact, many Singaporean parents sleep in different rooms. Yes? Is there anything that will decide what your coping mechanism will be? If you'll be rebellious or if you bend them, please. Is there anything that, that determines that? Yeah, uh, there are a lot. Uh, so um, one is how your primary caregivers respond to your various coping strategies. <laughs> So if you're like, fuck you, mom, and mom like, kicks, hits you like Mike Tyson over and over and over, you probably aren't going to go with Rebel too much because you're going to die. Like the baby will die. Like, you know, you have cases where the parents really won't put up with the kid, but they only see the mom and dad interact with each other that way. So it starts to do that, too. You know, they actually kill the kid. There was a case in uh, last year. They just took this toddler, like two years old or a year and a half old, in a trailer. They lived in a trailer park, so you get an idea. Um, and they just whipped it against the wall of the trailer park until it died. And you see the blood stains on the fucking wall. It's like psychopaths, man. So it could also be genetic. 
Um, but it's hard to split those apart. Like we were talking about that over dinner, right? Nature versus nurture. Um, it's really hard to isolate the factors. So unless you can find the gene for it, um, the gene for the rebel, but um, you'll see that it used to, there used to be a strong argument for the genetic case um, because rebellious parents would have rebellious kids. And then even if you took that kid away um, and put him in an in a orphanage or something. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, once you're in society, you can't isolate those variables. <laughs> um, but that's a great question. Um, we have, the clinical literature doesn't go into that very much. It's, the data comes as a given, and then you gotta deal with it. Um, so, also the society. Uh, one thing I've noticed a lot in Singapore is the, how many pleasers and achievers there were. There are. Like, that's why I make that joke about um, the Malay race, because in their subculture, um, that's not rewarded as much. Right? What's, what's rewarded is like artistic expression, uh, even bad boyness, just to fit in with their dad. Like, so if you were raised in a Rasta family and your dad had, like, some, some Malays have like dreadlocks, you know, and the dad's smoking weed on the void deck. Like as a kid, you have no way to even study because you have no desk and you have no lamp because they don't care. So that, that's what it will produce. But all these Chinese Singaporeans, they're going to become little nice boys because that's what they were rewarded. The coping, coping strategy actually has to allow you to cope. Okay, so it's an adaptive strategy. It actually has to work. And in fact, all of these strategies, it's important to realize this, um, they worked back then. That's why you took it. It worked to prevent you from getting killed uh, in your mind, psychologically, you thought you would die, right? It gave you the sense of security and safety because your parents rewarded you for it. Usually, usually yeah. they're being rebellious will cost you more problems, bigger problems down the line. Of course, yeah, they all, they all cause you bigger problems down the line. But you mean like the line tomorrow, not no, 20 years? 20 years, like in the future. Oh, that's what I'm pointing out. All of the coping strategies cause you problems down the line. A pleaser is even worse off than the rebel. The pleaser is much worse off. The rebel's rewarded by the society, man. He'll figure it out very soon because he'll be in jail over and over. You know, so Iceberg Slim figured out women when he was 14. So at least he figured it out. These pleasers are figuring it out when they're 35. They're delayed by 15 years because society kept them going as basically babies. So you see in Singapore, a lot of the males are basically big grown up babies because of that. They're, they're just in this immature stage. Um, so I say, I say these things also to trigger a, a masculinity out of the men. I'm going to insult the fuck out of you so you'll stand up, but we'll see. So the overall message to all of us is, so, oh, to all of us was, subtly and overtly, our parents and society approved of only a part of us. And if we want to stay in society, stay with our parents, we had to stick with that part. Okay, so example are when young, when young, you multiple times... Um, had limits placed on your sensuality. So I brought that one up. Okay, so what happens is you split off. So all, this, is, this is right like a, just like a split personality, dissociate. You dissociate off into a different self. And it, if it happens early on enough, no one thinks of it as split personality. And then you repress and so you, you, actually, you actually end up suppressing and then repressing that other part. So it doesn't come up. So it's not like you're talking in different voices with different names and shit, but, <laughs> but you actually dissociate it. Um, and uh, we give the name of the new coping strategy self, your false self. 
And a really great rubric for understanding this is a way towards and against. And um, one of the prime, uh, pioneers in childhood coping strategies is Karen Horney, um, a, a direct student of Jung. And, and so she gives a way towards against rubric. Away is the recluse or loner. So you just moved away from mom and dad. I don't even want to deal with this. If I, if I stay in my little corner, they won't bother me and I'll still get fed. Okay, and then towards, this is the pleaser or achiever. Mommy, mommy, love me. Look, I made this beautiful painting. Okay, and then the against is the rebel or delinquent. Like, fuck you all, you all suck. I'll take care of myself. <laughs> all right, and then if, they, if the parents just ignore the kid, you'll all end up becoming the rebel. Because you gotta give the, kid, the rebel space to operate, right? And then, uh, so if mommy and daddy are away at night, like this is often what will happen with rebels, but you can ask uh, Misha here, <laughs> is uh, uh, the parents ignore the kids. So they, the kid comes home from school to an empty house, and then you know, the parents don't ask how the kid was or how his day was, so he just does his own thing. Next thing you know, he's dealing drugs out the back as a 10-year-old. <laughs> it's not that bad. But. Okay, so what we had to do is erect a false self as a facade to fill the void that was created by the repression and from the lack of adequate nurturing. So a great time, it's a great time now to pause and ask yourself, you've tried all of these different coping strategies. Which one, do you, when you look back at your life, was predominant in your life? In a way strategy, is a towards strategy, or an, or an against strategy? Because what will happen is you use this coping strategy to get love from your, or safety at a more um, fundamental level from your parents. And you actually use this to get people to like you as well and to earn respect and significance and all the other good stuff that you want because that's what you learned when your brain was largely unformed. Okay. And then we call, we, we look at um, another type of self, this disowned self. So when the child is criticized for having the negative traits of the false self, um, well actually, so then what happens is, sorry, I skipped a step. So there's this false self. So now you have a false self, and let's say you choose the rebel or, or a nice guy pleaser, okay? So then later on at five, six years old, or when you wanna go talk to that girl, or when you do something really bad as a rebel, you start dealing drugs or whatever, then boom, you get criticized for being the negative traits of the false self. There are negative and positive traits for all of these selves. And it might just be your mommy, you, you were a really nice person to your family, but then your mommy's like, why don't you stand up for yourself? Right, something like that. So now you have, the, you're criticized for being the false self. You're further wounded. So you had to disown it by denying it actively. I am not self-centered or projecting it onto others. What do you mean I'm selfish? You're selfish. Right, so what this created was a further splitting off. And this happened over and over. So you had multiple disowned selves and multiple false selves. But you, you normally were in, like you felt comfortable in a main false self and, and a main disowned self. But most of the time you were your false self. Um, Jung called this your persona. And when you get into relationships, it really comes to the fore. Because there's a lot more at stake when, when it's love. Because love is triggered, uh, related to your primal fear of death. So the most vivid, intense impressions are from our primary caretakers, caretakers early in life. Um, the most influential moments were the most wounding ones with these people because they triggered our primal fear of death. So if you think about your childhood, and you, you try to think of nice memories, uh, you probably, hopefully you had some, okay? And uh, what the psychological literature is actually telling you is far more influential in your life 
were the, the nastiest moments. And in fact, they were so influential, you had to suppress them to get on with life. And then they became, re then you, then they became repressed. And then they're actually operating in your unconscious. But because they're operating in your unconscious, you don't have any control over them. Okay, so, um, it, so then we get to the concept of the imprint. The imprint is an unconscious image of the opposite sex that you formed since birth to early childhood that is a composite of your early primary caretakers. The reason this imprint is important is because of this. This is the most important slide up to this point. Whether you are romantically attracted to someone dependent largely on the degree to which that person matched your imprint. So you thought you liked that girl. Well, this is like romantic, not just sexual, right? So you liked that girl because she was this, this, and this. No, man, it's because she looked, she resembled your mom. That's what I'm like. When I first read this, I'm like, this is bullshit. This is disgusting. This is stupid. There's no way, right? Um, but uh, hang in there because this is the key to everything. Um, unconsciously, you have compared every potential partner to your imprint. And when you found a match, you experienced sudden, a sudden surge of interest. Now, it's always when, it's not like she has the same hairstyle as your mom. Or, like none of her, her hairstyle and her makeup, none of that mattered to your trauma. It was the traits that traumatized you um, and the positive and negative aspects of those that you're, you're focusing on unconsciously because, um, wait. Uh, because you ended up forming this composite from those traits and the traits were the key to getting the love and connection that you so desperately needed. So now we can explain chemistry. So there are five or four themes as, that make up how we can explain chemistry. The first is recognition. You might have heard lovers say this to each other and you know, uh-oh, this person's acting out their unconscious imprint. So if they've said, I know we've just met, but somehow I feel as though I already know you. At ease, comfortable resonance. By the way, pal, please don't use this to pick up girls. This will definitely work, right? So you, if you spit this out, it'll trigger her recognition theme. But, uh, but this is, it's sort of like, actually just thought of it, sort of like a computer program, right? Just like trigger this, this program, you run the program. So if that's happening, it's a recognition. Uh, and the reason why is because you've actually seen this person since you were a baby. You're just seeing the traits. Everybody does this when you fall in love. So. Just deal with it. Okay, timelessness theme. Strangely, we've only been seeing each other for a short time, but I can't recall when I didn't know you. Why? Because he's like an infant in the arms of his mother now with her. And he's thinking, finally, I'll be able to get the love that I've been craving since a child. I can finally be my true self that's been repressed since I was one year old. One year old. And then there's a necessity theme. I love you so much, I can't live without you. That's like the theme of every great, uh, romance movie, right? And this is, where does this come? We all like, oh, what a great love that is. Romeo and Juliet bullshit. Yes, why? Because when you're in love, you really think the love partner is now going to finally protect you from your primal fear of death, which is what, you know, you were hoping your primary your caretakers would, would give you, but um, you misinterpreted it from them, or they really like fucked you over. <laughs> and finally, the reunification theme. When I'm with you, I no longer feel alone. I feel whole. You complete me. Why? Because we think that when we're in love, finally we will end the relentless search for completion. We will finally feel fulfilled. 
All right. Why is this happening? Well, when people with complementary traits fall in love, they feel as if they're suddenly released from repression because it can finally be themselves, the themselves that they didn't even know they were because they repressed it when they were babies, when toddlers. A, per a person who grew up repressing feelings will choose a partner who is unusually expressive. This, oh, so these are examples, right? And then a person, oh, I should change that because a persona is in fact an important term. A person not allowed to be at ease with his own sexuality will choose a partner who is sensual and free. And you can see this over and over. You can, I can tell more about you by your girlfriend than watching you. Because the, the one that you've fallen in love with is your other self, is your lost self. We'll get to this later. But now we get to love explained. Romantic love, therefore, is unconsciously seeing the other person as a resource for the fulfillment of one's own unconscious childhood longings. Now, I turned this into a quote card on Instagram. Got lots of great li like likes, comments, everyone loved it, lots of shares. Um, and it was all organic, right? So um, I was like, great. And they were thinking, the comments were like, yeah, that's so horrible. You should never do this. Yeah, those bad pew ways, that's what they're doing. Or like, they think this is a bad thing. And it, when you say it like that, it's, it sounds like a bad thing. Like, I don't want to unconsciously see people as a, my own fulfillment of it. There's no way around it. Every single person does this. That's what creates the chemistry. Okay, it doesn't mean you don't love the person. And this is, tells you a lot about what they mean by the word love. It's this pure thing, it's true. And it makes sense. Like, I totally shared that sentiment. So you want to love the person for them. It's not that you're seeing them as a fulfillment for yourself. But in fact, that's what creates love. That's why you like that person instead of the other person. There are plenty of girls that these players could hook up with that they're just not excited about. And even like physically speaking, it's not even an issue. Like they're physically fine. But they're just not excited about that person. And it's many girls who are just not excited by a nice guy. And he could be a nice guy with money. He could be a nice guy with, you know, ticks all the boxes, checks all the boxes, but he's just not, just doesn't feel the chemistry. <laughs> right? And that, that's because their neuroses don't match. So she's like, you're not the one who will give me what my daddy always supposed to give me. <laughs> right? So that, that's actually what happens. So this is crazy. Take this out or take it to the bank, man. This is a good uh, party parlor trick. You know, it's like, I know about you. I know there's a part of you that loves to, you know, so basically what you'll see is a lot of these uh, pickup guys, they love strippers. You ever see this like, remember back in the day there was like stripper game, that bullshit, right? What, what's the obsession over these strippers? Well, it's because they've repressed, so they, all of these guys are nice guys. They have to be because that's why they suck with women because they, you know, so they repress that sexual, sensual, sexy side of themselves that, that swears and spits and smokes big ass cigars and shit, right? Okay, so, then they see a female that's the embodiment of their repressed self, and they're thinking, if that's, that's me. And that is also the part, not only did I disown, because I jumped the gun on that particular concept, but also that's, that's the part I couldn't be. And now if I can incorporate this into my life, I will finally be whole. And it also, on the negative side, that was the positive, I went to the positive on that. But on the negative side, um, that person needs to treat them the way their parents did. Not all the time, of course, because then they'll just flee, but in important minority of instances. Enough for them to, 
to feel like they could complete their business with them. Right? So if she had a, uh, a dad who was an avoidant, right, who was basically like, maybe he drank some, or maybe he just didn't show up you know, to her birthday or something, the way to trigger her, to follow, make her fall in love with you, is to not be there when she needs you. And then she'll be like, how dare you? And then you show up. So don't use this, it's not a tactic. But what's happening is you trigger that neurotic need. So for the needy guys, what happens? You have to have a fight and then she denies you the love and runs off, right? So you're like left hanging. And you're like, let me do more, let me do more, because that's what you did with your mom and dad. Let me please you more. Let me buy you more stuff, which is common in Singapore. Let me do you more favors, right? And then that's when the, the whole chase begins and now he's hooked. It's like a fish out in the sea, damn hooks in there. Just reel that baby in. Okay, so um, I forgot to remind you the schedule. So we're gonna go to uh, like an hour and a half and then break, hour and a half and then lunch. So we're gonna have at 11 o'clock. Um, that's accurate. So great, okay, so I'm on time. I'm powering through these, so, because I wanna fit this all in, because uh, I'm notorious for going over time. So if you have any questions at all, Feel free to raise your hand and stop me. Okay, what are we doing when this happens, when we're falling in love? How does the relationship start? So this is how it starts, I mean. How does it continue? Now we, I introduce you to a very important concept called transference. Transference is taking the attributes of one person and overlaying them onto another. The classic case is a transfer of feelings about their parents to their partners because unconsciously they chose their partners who sufficiently resemble their caretakers. Okay, following so far. Here's an example. A man grows up with a critical, distant mother. He forms the belief, nobody cares that I'm crying. What good is it to cry? So he begins to cover his sadness and anger with an unchanging mask. This, is a, this was a useful coping adaptation from his childhood. So this is like a common thing in Asian families. Um, so uh, the mother's like, you, um, you know, behave. And he's like, behave. Or you might get like the man up, like the bad kind of man up, right? Man up, kid. And he's like, well, I'm okay. And then he doesn't cry anymore because he learns crying is not rewarded. So as an adult, he hides his hostility under a mask of compliant, accepting manner. Uh, and then he falls in love with a woman who has a dark side of a caustic, critical nature. What the hell are they doing out there? To kill people out there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hope they give people warning if you're like having a picnic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, as an adult, then he, okay, that's right. So then he gets a woman who triggers this. So what you'll see is I can tell what your mother was like if I know your girlfriend. That's kind of weird, but I have to know which traits to look for the traits that really trigger, that really set you off. And then I can also tell your true self by the traits that are the positive in the other person. So um, the critical distant mother, he's gonna find a woman who has the dark side of a, of a very um, critical, criti uh, critical nature. Men can learn to grow here because her bad, temperature, uh, bad temper will challenge him to get in touch with his own denied emotions. It will learn to allow, he can learn to allow himself to feel and express strong emotions. So what'll happen is he'll fall in love with this woman who on the surface of it, totally doesn't resemble his mother. Because on the surface, he doesn't actually like his mother that much. He loves her, he doesn't like her. 
right? So, or, you know, he likes her enough on the surface, but there's always this latent hostility is what we're getting to, because she didn't give him the love that he needed, so he had to keep splitting off as a kid. So then her dark, the dark side of the woman starts coming out, and that's when he gets hooked. This is why girls hook, get hooked on the bad boy, because they had a bad dad. Okay, so, uh, or probably, maybe it was a bad other caregiver, but so um, she'll start to nag, and then she'll start to criticize him. And his normal response is to not show it. I'm not affected, I'm not affected, I'm not affected. And then that will destroy the relationship. Because he thinks, if I don't talk about it, it's fine. It worked with my mom. No, it didn't. But he thinks it did because his mom's still alive and he's still seeing her every once in a while. Uh, or maybe living with her, even worse, and the suppression and repression is ongoing, like in Singapore. Um, but often, what, what he's missing is this, a critical insight to actual success in, in the relationship. Because he will create this dynamic with every single girlfriend and wife that he gets in relationship with. It's inescapable. The only way out is to actually see this as an opportunity to grow. So she starts nagging him, nagging him, nagging him. And instead of dealing with it the way he did as a child that doesn't work for him now as an adult anymore, which was to hide, was to put on an unchanging mask and to pretend like it didn't affect him and then just throw it under the, uh, sweep it under the rug. Instead, what he needs to do is stop it. And you're all like, why? Why would that work? Okay, now I know about your mothers. You all had to be nice boys, didn't you? That's why when I get angry at you, you don't get angry back. I hope I didn't shake the camera too much. I'm waiting for you to get angry because it's good for you, therapy-wise, therapy but you don't. You just take it. You take it in, and then you go, you see it on their faces too. They get mad at me, but that's what you did with your mom and dad. So then you need therapy. You need, you need a guy to sit there and cry with you. And, so you, and then you, you put it on. We do different types of therapy. You imagine it somewhere else. I'm doing it like fucking Jesus Christ. I'm putting the cross on my fucking shoulders, and I'm being dad. Hate me. Hate me. But you won't. Your way out is to hate me and fucking tell me off. But you won't. That's why you'll never grow. The day you tell me off is the day I respect you. Back off. I got it. But then you stay in the conversation. You don't run like a little bitch. Back off and turn your brain on. That's what he needs to do in that relationship. Because she's bullying him. She's bullying him. She's bullying him like his mommy did. You say, hold on and stop. And then she'll be like, whoa, he's got balls. What's this? And she'll go, no, wait a minute. He'll like, no, wait a second. You see Tony Robbins once in a while erupt. What is he doing? Partly he's pattern interrupting. But also that is like to man up because your coping strategy was to withdraw to please, you're gonna get a woman who will bully you. And then you know what you'll do is you'll repress it, repress it, repress it, repress it until you can't hold it. And then you'll explode and it'll be uncontrolled and then it'll turn into something much worse. And then the whole thing will fall apart. Just a matter of time. So here's an actual opportunity for you to grow because you can't, I'm gonna get back to this example later, but you, you're afraid to express your strong emotions because they were not acceptable as a child in this example. I don't know about you or you watching this, but in this example of this man, he had to repress the emotion. I'm slightly depressing with everything. Yes. It is. So it's like, oh, well, there's a slide that says there is hope, but yeah. Oh, fuck, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like how do we get out of it? 
how do we break the patterns? Oh, right. The needs of ourselves, and how do we great question? Create a relationship who has these patterns that we actually don't want to desire. How do we break all the shit? Yeah, uh, right. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> I remember um, back in the day, many years ago, uh, there was a thread. Um, I can't remember exactly where, but anyway, one of the guys, some of the guys you know, there's, these are all dating coaches. We're like, um, we keep like they, we keep going for the drama girl, the one that's like you know is dangerous and out of control. Why don't we get like why don't we just settle with this? And then everybody kept cho choosing the the problem girl, and um, you know eventually you'll start you see this. For the guys who stay in the PUA world really like oh, too long, you know, 10 years or more coaching boot camps and they're, they're so fucked up, right? Like, anyway. But, but I'll get to your point real quick. Let me just keep going and get there. Projection. All right, so we, we covered transference. Now we're into projection. Projection is when you take a hidden part of yourself and attribute it to your partner. So whenever we take a part of the disowned or hidden true self, and project it onto the other partner, we're projecting. What then happens is we, we become egotistonic. We see a part of our own being that's incompatible with our own self-image. So for example, a man sees in his angry wife a part of his own disowned nature. He didn't get to be angry anymore. She's being angry. Oh, I like that, but I don't like that. So that's what happens. So he stays with it. So this is what happens over time. Over time in the romantic relationship, you'll wish your partner was less whole. For instance, less sex, uh, I meant sexual, <laughs> less sexual, less fun loving. <laughs> you'll wish she was less sexual or less fun loving or less ambitious or etc. Because these qualities called forth repressed qualities in yourself and your hidden self threatened to come forth as a result when you, when you saw those, which set off your lifelong adaptive self to replace, to police it. As your relationship matured, you unconsciously felt something about your partner, awaken strong memories of childhood pain. One sign of this is when you use universal qualifiers in your fights or in your thought patterns in regard to the partner, always or never, indicating a re regressive state. So um, what happens is what you loved in her at the beginning is what will trigger you the most later on. So, like take exam the example again of a nice guy who gets some game, hooks up with a stripper or something, and now they're in a relationship with a stripper, and you, you can actually see the sort of thing online, um, like stripper, guys who teach stripper game and all that shit. What'll eventually happen is he'll want to settle down, and he'll want to be like in a relationship, relationship with her. So he'll want her to be like not so slutty. Can you be less slutty, please? Can you cover up? Can you not fuck all my friends? <laughs> okay, so. I mean, actually, strippers don't do that, but like, you know. So he loved the fact that she was wild, that he could show her off, right? And that they could do everything together like crazy shit. And then that started to turn him off. So you'll see this over and over. Red pill, that red pill subculture, the men that go their own way subculture came out of this dynamic. What they, do, uh, they, what they did was they learned game. Game only really appealed to narcissistic women, right? So then he gets in with, with a narcissistic woman. And I've actually covered this in other, in other courses. And then what happens is he hates that part of her because she's too wild. But the wildness is what drew him to her in the first place. He's not picking up girls at the nun, nunnery. It's not nunnery. What do you call that? Convent. Convent pickup. That's not happening. It's stripper pickup. But then he's like, I don't like the fact that she's a stripper. Well, dude. 
That's why you picked her in the first place. And this is the drama problem. Right? So what's actually happening psychologically is she's expressing a repressed part of him, his hidden self, a repressed part of him. And then his hidden self came out and, um, or his hidden self was, was like going to come out, like he was going to become the sexy guy, finally, fully. But then, and maybe he was for a while, right? Because pickup teaches you how to be that way for a while. And then his adaptive self came down and boom. This is actually what you see a lot of these guys break down. Um, they have the, the warring of the selves, or they thought that they were this, their false self was their true self, which is like their sexy, powerful, don't give a fuck self. But then what happens is their adaptive self said, oh no, hold on, mommy didn't like that, bam. Right? And then he feels guilty being that way. And so he's always warring on those two selves. Um, sometimes he'll give himself all the way over to it, and go all the way into the drugs and, and the crime and all that stuff. And maybe he'll go and actually co-own um, a, a nightclub or something, or a strip club, um, and, and go all the way in. And basically what happened was his false self became so strong, he just stayed there. And, that's so, and then it's even more removed from his original lost self. Um, so now we can revisit projection. Our partners make us feel anxious by stirring up our forbidden parts. Our partners have or appear to have the same negative traits as our childhood caretakers, caretakers, triggering the original wounds and awakening our unconscious primal fear of death. Okay. And your imprint is also you. Not only do we unconsciously, unconsciously look for a partner who has the traits of our primary caregivers, those traits are also essentially part or essential parts of our disowned selves. Here's an example. A woman marries a man who has characteristics of violent anger that she detested so much in her stepfather and which is also a denied part of her own personality. So this is, this woman will always be in conflict. This is what actually psychologists call inner conflicts. She can never find satisfaction. Okay. So how do we move? And she'll try to oh. deal with that guy in the same way that she dealt with that. Just with the same coping mechanisms. Exactly. Yeah. And then it will trigger him. <laughs> and so we forget his side of it as well. And then it could get very violent fast. I mean, when you're dealing with <laughs> two people getting triggered. Okay. So from, from romantic love to towards real love. Here's the trajectory. We choose our partners because one, they reflect key positive and negative qualities of our primary caregivers. And two, they compensate for positive parts of ourselves that we cut off in childhood. Okay, so this is the dynamic we've been looking at. We then embark on relationships unconsciously hoping this partner will become our surrogate parent and make up for the deprivation of our childhood. We unconsciously believe if we can, if we can only form this close lasting relationship, we will finally be healed. Okay, this is pointed out by Jung and people earlier than this, and, and then it became caricatured in pop media. So, um, unfortunately, all that good stuff was lost through the joking around. This is, this is actually the case of what's happening. The two partners stir up each other's repressed behaviors and feelings. They re-injure each other's childhood wounds, and they project their own negative traits onto the other. So the thing that they couldn't be that Horrible, naughty boy, you're that way. Of course, he's doing that and not knowing it. So then you get into this power struggle, and here are the five stages. The first stage 
This is the last slide before we take a break. The first stage is shock. So this is, this is right after the honeymoon stage, right? Then you're like, what the fuck? This is not the person I thought I'd married. You hear this from your buddies all the time, right? Now you, or married, well, I use that as a more extreme example. Now you believe married life is gonna be a continuation of the loneliness and pain of your childhood and the long anticipation, anticipated healing is not to be. And then this is a breakdown that is way out of proportion with the actual fight. Because it's not just about the fight, the garbage, um, taking out the trash or, or the dishes. It's about the fact that you're going to be lonely and pained all your life. And that's why they have these big blow-ups. And then you move into den denial. Eventually, denial cannot be sustained and you feel betrayed. So this is where you just ignore it and just like, okay, let's not deal with this. In the morning, everything's great. You don't actually solve the issue. And then this leads to um, an extreme of anger. Either your partner has changed drastically since the days you were first in love, or you've been deceived all along about your partner's true nature. How did you turn, and you ever see this like, it's crazy, right? Like two people live together for three, four, five, six, ten 10 years, 20 years, and then they have a breakup, and then they never talk to each other ever again. That's, that's crazy, because like during those years, they were best friends. You ever have a big fight with your best friend and then it's over? Like, that's, it's rare for dudes to do that. Like, we don't care that much <laughs> right, about a best friend. Like, maybe we don't trust this guy anymore or whatever, right? But, but like, it's crazy because what happens is you make this choice, number three. You say, either you weren't the person I thought you were or you tricked me. That allows you to just break it off forever. So that's, that's what happens in relationships. So then you start to bargain if you can't just break it off. If, so this is where everybody shows up in the Man Up group. Right? By the time they get to the Man Up Facebook group, they ask me these questions. They're already in bargaining stage. They tell me all of the different bargains they tried that didn't work. Here are some examples. If you give up your drink, she says to you, if you give up your drinking, I'll be more interested in sex. Right? So the girl starts using sex as a bargaining tool to force behavior. Um, or he'll say, if you let me spend more time fishing, I'll spend more time with the children. Now they get into this bargaining. Um, bad relationship coaches and counselors actually worsen this dynamic by negotiating behavioral contracts without getting at the root issues. Right, so then they become referees and say, okay, so now you hear her side, okay, so you gotta give her some of the stuff that she wants, okay, you hear his side, and it comes with negotiation. That actually doesn't help at all, it actually makes it worse. And then it leads to despair. Most couples create parallel relationships and try to find significance outside the relationship. As few as 5% of couples discover the solution and grow into a deeply satisfying relationship. But 95% of couples, um, and these are longitudinal um, studies that have been done, uh, either end up in divorce, and in America over 50% end up in divorce, and then the remaining you know, 40%, 35% end up finding significance elsewhere. 5% that actually stick through the therapy, uh, well, there is hope for them, and there is hope for you. On that note, we're going to end this section. We get a, a break. There's some refreshments outside. Should be. I have one question. Oh, yeah. Would this be fixable if only one other partner would do something about it? If it is possible. Yeah. Yes, it's possible for one integrated person to lead the other person forward, um, but. Uh, it's very obviously difficult, yeah. yeah. Especially if the other person's resisting. Um, but one of the greatest things, one great piece of hope is if you're both willing to go to counseling and open-minded to it, 
then you definitely are in the right frame of mind. So one of the problems of all of the relationship books is they have exercises. The exercises are really boring. Like you have to sit across from the table from her or him and then you ask each other questions over and over and there's like a list of 50 questions and when you get to the end of the 50 questions you'll be doing well and then there's like 50 of those and if you do them all then you'll have saved your relationship. I don't think it comes from the actual exercise as much as from the fact that she's willing to sit there and ask each of these stupid ass questions you know for like three hours or whatever it is. If she's willing to do that then you can be saved. So um, if only sort of like if only one of you goes to therapy can it work? It could. Um, but you, the other person has to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So there is hope. And if you want to get the solution that I'm going to present, just opt into the form. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, the rest of the course is available in our free courses catalog. Uh, I'll see you inside. For you guys, we'll, we have refreshments outside. Take a half hour break and then we'll, we'll get back into the, the solution. Well, we'll start the solution. See you in the next video.